I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. I'll take our scripture from there in just a moment. I want to begin this morning by assuring you that the Lord's Supper is the centerpiece of everything we're doing in the service. And it is an opportunity for us to come together in fellowship, not just with each other, but most importantly, in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. He is here. He's not up there. He's not out yonder. I don't know anybody but Southerners who say yonder. He's not out yonder. He's here. He is alive. He is the risen Savior who by spirit walks up and down these aisles and in and out of these pews every single time that we meet in His name. So we acknowledge His presence with us this morning. If anything, we overemphasize that. Just reminding you that what we do today is sometimes referred to as a tradition. It is our tradition that we observe the Lord's Supper ever so often usually around the fifth Sunday uh, or the month that, that has a fifth Sunday in it. But like most traditions, if you're not intentional about them, you'll lose your focus and they will lose their significance. And so this morning I'm asking that you be intentional about coming to the Lord's table. Uh, Angie and I grew up in Pontotoc, Mississippi. That's where we were in high school together. And Billy Joe Kennedy was our worship leader and youth pastor. He served kind of a dual role there, as many did back in that day. And uh, Billy Joe had this way about him. He, he would do it with choirs especially, but even with a congregation. If you were singing a song and it was just sort of obvious to him that you were going through the motion, he would clap his hands and he would stop you from singing and he said, no, we're going to start over and this time I want you to sing it like you mean it. We could use that from time to time, can't we? So everybody just kind of be called to attention and, you know, say, oh, he means business. And so, and then you would sing with a little more unction. You, you would just sort of give your attention a little more to the task at hand. Well, that's what I'm asking us to do this morning. Don't just go through the motions of taking the bread and the cup, just saying, oh, we, we observe communion today. Well, we will. But I hope that your expression and your reflection on this experience will be more of, we came to the Lord's table this morning. And it was meaningful. And it had an impact on my life. The Lord's Supper is the centerpiece of everything that we do this morning. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 2, listen to what the scripture says. It says, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is also called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. 
If you've been with us for a Sunday or two in the past, you know that we are in a study of the 12 disciples. And this morning we've looked at the first listing of the 12 in the New Testament here in Matthew chapter 10. Today I want to focus on a disciple that is next to the last here. He's found in uh, verse 3, James, the son of Alphaeus. He's listed in every listing of the twelve disciples, so there's no mistake here. We know that James, the son of Zebedee, was also one of the twelve. So there was another disciple also named James, who was a part of the group. And it's interesting, isn't it, that as Matthew tells us the listing, he says James, the son of Zebedee, and James, the son of Alphaeus. If you've ever been in a group where there were two people with the same first name, you usually had to make a distinction between the two so that everybody would know which one you were talking about, right? So that seems to be what's taking place here. I need to acknowledge up front that this is the least known disciple. (laughs) Some of you are saying, least known disciple and Lunch after church, I came on the right Sunday. He won't have much to say if that's the least known disciple, right? You would be correct. I'm going to take you down a little path here for just a moment. I'm going to show you how I think this is so appropriate for the Lord's Supper as we come to observe that ordinance in just a moment. Point number one, a certain fact. The certain fact is that there was a disciple that Jesus called to follow him to serve alongside all of these 11 other men who was named James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know who Alphaeus was. He's just there listed as the father of this man named James. That is a certain fact. But point number two, moving along quite nicely, aren't we? Is an interesting speculation. A certain fact, and now an interesting speculation. I want you to look back in Matthew 9, verse 9, for just a moment. Now, we've read this before. As a matter of fact, we read it last Sunday. And I intentionally follow up the message on Matthew with the message on James, the son of Alphaeus. But watch why. Here's the verse. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. That is the scripture that I used as we talked about Matthew, the tax collector. Correct? You remember? Say yes. You'll offend me. All right? Okay. Now turn to Mark's gospel, chapter 2, just a few pages over, and look at verse... 14. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and look at verse 14. Remember, Mark's Gospel was the earliest of the four. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Now, I was a bit 
sneaky last Sunday by doing this, but I did not ask you to turn to Mark's Gospel chapter 2, but that's exactly the passage that I referred to when I let you know, or reminded you, I should say, that before we knew him as Matthew, he was known as Levi. And lo and behold, as we turn to Mark's Gospel chapter 2, Mark says that Levi was not just Levi the tax collector, but he was known in that day as Levi the son of Alphaeus who was a tax collector. Now, I know immediately what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, here's a mistake. But, you know, who's right? Who's, well, follow me on this. Matthew's gospel, we believe, was written by Levi. I think Matthew knew who his father was, correct? He would have known. And it may have just very well been that Matthew referred to himself as Matthew in his own gospel because that was the name that Jesus gave him. And I guarantee you, if Jesus changes your name and mine, that's the name we're going to be going by, right? So he preferred that name. And watch this. As he lists the 12 disciples, the first list begins with Brothers, Simon Peter, the first, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. So isn't it possible that as Matthew finds his way to list himself as also one of the twelve, naturally he would include the man following him who quite possibly would have been his brother. And so that having been the case, we see that as we put a picture of the 12 disciples in our mind, six of them are blood-related. Six of them are siblings of sorts, three sets of siblings. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Matthew and James. Now, You say, isn't it possible that there were two Alphaeus? Of course. But many Bible scholars believe that what Matthew reveals to us here in his gospel and Mark shows us here in chapter 2 is that these two men were very much possibly brothers. Matthew, Levi Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Now some of you are saying, you know, you better get to the point here because this isn't really, it's just, you know, face value stuff. I get that. Certain point, interesting speculation. Now I want to show you, Tim, where's Tim? There you are. And Evan, get out your pens, all right? A hermeneutical assumption. (laughs) Some of you are saying, who's Herman? What? All right, here's the thing. These guys are taking seminary classes, and so we've talked a little bit about ministry and preaching and preparing a sermon. There are basically two core tracks that preachers are taught in seminary. One is called homiletics. That's the delivery of sermons. The other is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the proper way to interpret the Scripture. 
And there's a lot to hermeneutics by taking into account the background of the Scripture and the author of the Scripture and the audience of the Scripture and all of that kind of stuff as we make application of it. So homiletics over here, the delivery of sermon, hermeneutics here is the interpretation of Scripture. I started with a certain fact. I led you to an interesting speculation. And now I want to show you a hermeneutical assumption. I want to make an interpretation of the Scripture and then make application of it and show you exactly what this means. Most Bible scholars, I am not, I just read them, this is what it says, is that in the listing of the 12 disciples, the last four disciples were believed to have been members of what was called the Zealot Movement. As you read through the list, you'll even find Simon, yet another one named the same as Simon Peter, of course. Simon identified as Simon the Zealot, we'll consider him in weeks to come. But the Zealot movement was very much alive and active in the days of Jesus and especially just prior to the coming of Jesus. And so what you see here is that many say that these last four disciples, it would have been like James the Less, Simon the Zealot, the disciple known as Thaddeus, who had three names. We'll get to him somewhere down the road. And then the last being Judas Iscariot, Judas Iscariot, also a well-known member of the Zealot movement. But they believe that James, the son of Alphaeus, was also included in the list. Now, understand this. When the Bible was put into English versions for you and me to read, it was translated from multiple manuscripts. Multiple manuscripts. As scribes would see it, and before the days that we had the printing paper, you know, printing like books, they would, they would meticulously with, with a quill and ink, they would, would write the, the, the words just from one transcript to another, making a very careful but exacting copy of what was there. In two of the manuscripts, and there are multiple manuscripts of the Gospels, Two of them say James, the son of Alphaeus, also a member of the Zealot movement. So they just put the two right there together. Now, the common question is, who, who are the Zealots? Well, I'm going to talk about them extensively later, Lord willing. But this morning, just for the sake of making, making application of this, follow me on this. They were workers against the Roman government. You see, the zealot movement started out as a group of people coming together praying that God would send the Redeemer, send the Messiah. But they believed that the Messiah was going to be someone of military strength who would overthrow the Roman government and deliver the Israelites out from under their bondage. You remember Jesus dealt with this constantly as they wanted Him to take some action against the Roman government. But He refused to do so. Why? Because he knew that that was not his mission. That was not his purpose in coming into this world. You see, the zealots had the idea that it was military mission. Jesus' mission was totally spiritual. He came to free us from spiritual bondage, not political bondage or national bondage. And there were some who had a difficult time with that. So the zealots would come together and over to pray and pray and pray. But like many of us, if we do it over and over, their praying time began to be cut short and their conversation time began to lengthen as they began to talk about ways to do it themselves. 
And that's what happens with us when God delays answering our prayers. We eventually want to say, well, I'll just take this matter into my own hands. And so what they began to do is they began to describe for themselves ways that they could actually go and take out members of the Roman government. And they did so in a mercenary form. They would actually assassinate and kill some of them. As a matter of fact, they had a group within the zealot movement that was kind of like a, a, a heavily trained group of men, much like Navy SEALs or the Green Beret. If, I don't even know if we still have Green Beret in the Army, but back when they were in existence, they, were just, they, they just went a little above and beyond, and they were specialized in their skills. Now, this group in the, in the zealot movement was called the Sakar group. And they were identified by a small dagger that they kept under their coat. And usually in a crowded setting, they would identify the Roman authority that they wanted to kill and get close enough to him that they would reach in, pull out the sakar, slip it in his back, and they were skilled at knowing where the kidneys and the lungs and all were. And then they would, they would just stand there against the individual until they bled to death. And then when the crowd would move away, the person would fall and die and they would realize, ah, oh, this has been an act of the sakar. You say, okay, James was a part of that? Yeah, and three other disciples. You mean they were a part when they were actually praying that God would send the Messiah? Yeah, but they were also a part that also believed that they could take out the Roman authorities and would have done so by taking up arms, weapons, it's necessary. You say, well, what does that have to do with James, the son of Alphaeus? Who was his brother? Like Billy Joe. Matthew. For whom did Matthew work? The Roman government. He was a tax collector, remember? The whole point of this is that at some point in their lives, as long as Levi Matthew was collecting money from the Jews and giving it to the Romans, James, a part of the zealot movement, most likely, quite possibly would have been willing to kill his own brother. Hmm. And the Lord Jesus calls them both and says, be my disciples. What's happening here? The Lord Jesus is taking these two men, these two brothers who were blood related and putting them in a situation. One, God has an opportunity to transform their hearts and their minds from one, an allegiance to the Roman government to an allegiance to God himself. And another, from a man who was willing to take the life of his brother and now would be willing to defend his brother with his own life. You, you see what this does, ladies and gentlemen, it presents Jesus as the great reconciler of all mankind. Do you know about the word reconcile? It's an accounting term. It, it, we we tend, tend, tend to think in terms of reconciling our bank statements. You know what I've discovered about that? You know, you take that ledger that you use when you write a check, you write it down. Some of us do online banking now, and so it's, you know, sort of automated for us. But back in the day, when you would actually write in that ledger that banks would give you, 
you know, it's part of your checkbook, check number so-and-so, paint out to North Winona Baptist Church, and you put the amount there. Well, at the end of the month, you get a statement from the bank. Now, you would keep a little balance in there from time to time, but when the statement came in from the bank, what would you do? You'd put the two side by side, and you would reconcile the two. What are you doing? You're making sure that they are in agreement with one another. Is this totally foreign to anybody? Anybody here ever reconciled a bank statement? Some of you, now the young people are saying, I didn't know they even had those back then. Yeah, I date myself, I know. You know what I learned about that as a practice of doing that from time to time? (laughs) The bank seldom, if ever, made a mistake. Usually the mistake was on my end, right? Well, let me tell you something about God being the great reconciler. He never makes a mistake. But what we have to do is we put our life on the table and we lay His view of our life on the table. And the challenge for you and me is to always measure up and to come into agreement with where He says we are. That's what it means to reconcile. God not just reconciles us with each other. God reconciles us with Himself. The word reconcile can also mean to live in harmony. In existence with one another. And I want to tell you something, folks. I think that Levi, Matthew, and James, both sons of Alphaeus, if they spent any time together, I'm thinking at home on holidays and things like that, prior to them following Jesus, I think there was tension among the two. Matter of fact, I don't even know that they would even sit down and have a meal together as long as one was working for the Roman government and the other was part of the zealot movement. And Jesus had a wonderful ability of giving them the opportunity to overcome those prejudices, those allegiances. He he would say, this is who I see that you can become, and this is who you are. And so there was a reconciling of the two. God wants to do the same thing with you and with me. And He does it with Him as our relationship with Him is understood, but He does it with each other as well. I want to challenge you to do something this afternoon. Can I do that? Can I challenge you just to do that? This afternoon, when we go to the Family Life Center and serve our plates in a meal, sit down by somebody you don't know. Now, I don't mean split families up. You can sit with your spouse and your children, whatever you need to do, please. Some of you are saying, my child can sit with somebody else. No, they can sit with you. Get to know somebody that you don't. You know what you'll discover? Quite possibly is that you're, you're already reconciled. There's common ground. You'll engage in conversation to find out about the other person or the other family. And in doing so, you discover that there is common... If nothing else, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And what you identify here is that you've strengthened the family relationship of a church as you've identified yourself as part of the family of God as you came to the Lord's table. One last little thought about this, and I'll close. Some of you are saying, that little known disciple, he had a lot to say about him, didn't he? Here it is. You know, we don't don't know that James preached a sermon, wrote a hymn, said a prayer. 
We don't know anything about him. Nothing. Other than the fact that he is listed as one of the 12 disciples. He's just part of the group. It's quite a special group, isn't it? Uh, when was the last time you heard anybody mention Otto the Fourth or Innocence the Third? Anybody, anybody in conversation mentioned those names in the last month? How about the last year? How about the last five years? Probably not. They were, they were just emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. That's all. How about Mentor Graham? Anybody here know who Mentor Graham was? No? He was just a man that heavily influenced Abraham Lincoln. Taught him to read. Helped him understood a calling in life that was bigger than life itself. That's all. You see, what I'm showing you is there are some no-named individuals out there. So they have names, but, but we don't remember who they are. We don't remember what they did. But how vitally important they were. I wonder if when Jesus called James, the son of Alphaeus, to follow him, James, uh, Jesus would have said to James, James, guess what? Nobody's going to remember you. They're not going to know anything about you other than the fact that you were one of the twelve. I, I wonder if James would have said, you know, I think I'll opt out here if there's no recognition in it. If there's no opportunity for me to be patted on the back, for me to be, you know, have, have folks come up and say, oh, I don't know. But yet there he is. Listed as one... For you and me, it's not about recognition. It's not, it's not that our name is in bold. It's not that we're ever asked to do something important so we're going to receive the credit for it. It is the idea that I am a servant of the Lord Jesus and you can never outserve the Lord Jesus. Because in the upper room, according to John 13, when all the other disciples were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus took off his robe and girded himself and washed the disciples' feet and then said to them, As I have done to you, so should you do for one another. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby baptized believers, members of the church, Come together to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we meditate on His coming again. Church, would you prepare yourselves to receive the elements of the Lord's table? And as they are passed this morning... Can I just tell you that the bread and the juice are in two separate cups, one inside the other. The juice is sitting right on top of the wafer. So as you reach into the tray, make sure you get two cups. On the bottom will be the wafer, the bread, and the juice will be on top. We'll observe them separately, but it'll just be one distribution of the elements. Okay. Deacons, would you stand?
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, my enemy, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as we partake of the bread today, we are mindful that the body of Jesus was willingly laid down for us so that we might have hope of an eternity in heaven. And until that day comes, surely goodness and mercy are a part of our lives every single day. Today we give you thanks. Make us grateful. In Jesus' name, as often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of Him. From Romans 5. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Father, we know that this cup represents the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. And without the shedding of that blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Today, we are so grateful and mindful that your blood has reconciled us to you and to each other. Through our Savior, we pray. As often as we do this, we do it in remembrance of Him.